Hello and welcome to the first Auto Talk podcast. Now, if you're not aware of who Auto Talk is, we're a little website that's been running for a number of years now, providing dealer news to the Australian market. So we write stories about automotive dealers, their supply chains, the distributors that are out there, and the business of selling cars in general. Uh, we have some really great content there. So if you haven't already seen it, check it out. If you have already seen it, I hope you already subscribed to our email uh, newsletters. They come out twice a week, and they are the perfect morning digest for a dealer. Now, we have a really great guest for our first episode today. James Vortman is the Chief Executive Officer of the AADA, the Australian Automotive Dealers Association. And he's going to talk about franchising codes and some of the consultation and work the AADA is doing at the moment on behalf of dealers. So uh, let's get on with the interview. And once you're done, don't forget to like, subscribe, and rate this on your favorite podcast app. Or if you're watching us on YouTube, on uh, YouTube there. Really appreciate it. So, James, thank you for joining us. Uh, fairly busy time for the AADA, I imagine. Thanks for having me, Richard. Yeah, incredibly busy time. Uh, a lot of government uh, sort of proposals out there, which we're providing feedback on to. And um, our members are, are selling cars, but a lot of them are under lockdown and we're playing our part in helping them. So, yes, very busy time. Now, of course, one of the, the long-standing issues, not necessarily related, related to lockdowns, uh, is franchising. I mean, it's a, it's a bit of a minefield, and, mm. and we're into this, this kind of next stage of consultation now. Mm. Uh, I mean, there's a whole pile of uh, inf great information in a, uh, a document you guys have put out in regards to uh, franchising. Now, I'm going to run through a few key points from that. Yep. First is, why does the ADA believe the definition of a motor vehicle dealership needs to be changed to kind of capture all aspects of the dealer OEM relationship. Yeah, so this goes back to, as you say, this is the next phase in um, an ongoing process of automotive franchising reform. And we had our most recent changes on the 1st of July. And what we've found uh, in the few months since that period is um, that there have been a, a couple of developments with OEMs developing new agreements with their dealers. And one of the things that we've seen is um, that some of those OEMs have separated the sales agreement from the service and parts agreement. And in that case, the service and parts agreement potentially falls outside of the existing protections. And we don't believe that was the intent um, of the regulations when the government introduced them. So we think just to tidy it up and make sure that it's all sort of captured, that the definition um, of motor vehicle dealership should change. At the moment, it's probably focused more on the sales avenue of the dealership. We think it should be changed to encompass all elements of the relationship. So whether it's um, regulations on compensation or provision of notice um, or providing a reason when you're non-renewed uh, dealer, um, we think it should um, apply equally to service and parts, to finance, insurance, and to sales. All avenues of the relationship we think should be governed by uh, the automotive provisions of the franchising code. So, so do you feel that some distributors have done that to sidestep the regulation as it stands? Oh, look, I don't know if that was a deliberate uh, sort of tactic to try and sidestep uh, the regulations. We do know that many distributors are uh, sort of, you know, armed with with the, the best legal team's money can buy. So I wouldn't be surprised if it was, but not pointing any fingers here. Um, we're just sort of highlighting what we think is a vulnerability under the current laws. These are new laws. So so we'll probably see um, a number of issues emerge as, as we sort of apply them. Um, and, and this is one that we've, we've taken particular notice of. 
Yeah, I guess it's always great when you get this chance to review and look at things again after after the, 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 the real world has begun to hit these things. Why does the AADA believe there is a need for a standalone automotive code of conduct? Well, look, we've, we've for some years have been calling for a standalone automotive code of conduct. We did that um, because, uh, you know, we believe it's very sort of obvious that there is a power imbalance between automotive car dealers and large car manufacturers. We don't think it's unique to Australia. We know that it exists in the US, the UK, New Zealand, all over the world. Um, but in markets like the United States and to a lesser extent uh, the Euro in Europe, there are sort of regulations which have uh, sort of gone about sort of at least providing a degree of balance to that uh, power imbalance. We haven't really had that in Australia, and that's why for uh, many years we've been calling for a standalone code of conduct um, for the automotive industry, and we just believe we need that because our industry is very different from traditional franchising. Uh, the, the amount of capital we invest uh, to represent a, a car manufacturer is far greater than what a traditional franchisee would uh, spend. Uh, the, the relationship with, we have with our customers is different because we see those customers coming back. We're providing those customers with finance insurance. And finally, in the Australian context, I'd argue that the franchisors in our industry are much larger than many others. Uh, not all, but, but most. They're all Fortune 100 companies and they're very large and decisions are made abroad um, that impact Australian um, businesses and consumers. So, so that's why we believe we need a standalone code of conduct. Now, the government's made a decision um, that it would create a schedule to the franchising code. That's a technical point of law. And they're now asking whether they should go further and, and have a standalone code of conduct. Our view is we just want a system that works and protects dealers. Um, at this point in time, it looks like the government's going to stay with the schedule. So what we've said is let's have a look at this again in a few years when there's a statutory review of the regulations. Mm -hmm. Are there particular areas that the, you believe the government needs to be closely monitoring mm. uh, in regards to these franchise agreements? So I understand things that you've already said are things like tenure, mm. unfair contract terms, and OEMs offering different dealer agreements on different vehicle models. I mean, can you give me a, yeah. a, an explanation of what you think the key points are? Yeah, hundred percent. I'll start with the the issue of tenure, um, and uh, you know, we we have a concern that the dealers are or have in the past experienced uh, insecurity of tenure. Um, that's whereby um, OEMs are providing dealers with short-term agreements and, and you know, giving them that lack of certainty for the future, but also often maybe asking them to invest um, capital, which they may not necessarily be able to recover over the course of a short agreement. Um, how this is done in the U US is that most agreements are, are evergreen and you can terminate your dealers, but only for good cause. Um, and in, in, the, uh, in the European Union, um, you need to give at least around two, two years notice when you are going to embark on a, a process of, of, of terminating dealerships. So what we've said in Australia is uh, we think five years is a reasonable term for a dealer. Um, it's something the government hasn't been prepared to um, implement yet. They've tried to address it in another way, which is to put a regulation in which says an OEM has to give a dealer the opportunity to recover their investment. So we think that might be difficult to apply, but we just want the government to keep monitoring that issue of tenure. Another one is, mm. is unfair contract terms. Um, if you read through a, an agreement between a manufacturer and a dealer, 
It is often a, a large document. Uh, it has subsidiary documents such as uh, policy manuals and so forth. And there are a lot of terms in there. And often these terms are, are very much skewed in the favor of the manufacturer. Um, in Australia, we have unfair contract term protections for small businesses. Um, and up until recently, dealers did not qualify as small businesses because um, the definition of a small business in that legislation looks at the number of employees you have, and that number is 20. We've been asking for that definition to be expanded so that our members can have protection against some of those unfair contract terms. And to give you a flavor of what those terms are, there are terms that allows a manufacturer to to vary the agreement without uh, any sort of uh, agreement with the dealer, um, terms which, which they can potentially change uh, the, the dealer's prime market area without negotiation. So so really those those terms which are really heavily skewed in, in favor of the manufacturer. So we'd like to see all franchisees, including the dealers, um, have those kinds of protections. And we think there's merit in that given the, the, the disparity in size between dealers and manufacturers. And then I'll just touch on one that we've seen recently. Um, and this relates to a lot of manufacturers are trying to experiment with new distribution models. And, and we, we've always said that's fine. Um, if you want to start a new distribution model, you have the right to do so as a manufacturer and a distributor. But the onus is on you to pay compensation to those dealer networks that invested so much, employed so many people, put, put in so much blood, sweat and tears into that brand. Um, if you are going to change um, the system overnight, you should compensate those dealers. We've seen a number of brands start trying to do sort of both. So they'll run a franchise agreement for most of their vehicles, but then they'll run an agency agreement or a you know a fixed price model for some of their models. We believe dealers uh, you know have have the power to um, well should have the power or at least the ability to uh, sell all of the vehicles that a manufacturer sort of uh, distributes in a market. Um, so, so those are some of the issues we're asking the government to watch. We, we don't expect them to take immediate action because they've either said this isn't the time or there's another process of government that'll be looking at that. Um, and and we, we're just telling them we need to keep a close watch on these things to make sure that dealers aren't adversely affected. Now, when we're talking about dealers, let's look a little bit at the definition. Now, uh, truck, motorcycle and farm machinery dealers have been excluded from mm. the protections. I mean, where do you sit on that? Well, look, I'll make it clear. Firstly, the, the AADA represents um, sort of car dealers. So uh, we don't formally represent truck, motorcycle or farm machinery dealers. Having said that, a lot of my members do have truck franchises and a lot of them do have motorcycle franchises. And we know for a fact that they face exactly the same issues that car dealers face in terms of their relationships with manufacturers and often they're facing those those issues with the same businesses the same companies so um, I think it was a bit of an oversight that they weren't included in the first round of uh, amendments we are very supportive of them um, being included uh, in this next round and we'll be we'll be calling for all of those dealers to enjoy the same protections that car dealers do enjoy Mm-hmm. Now, can you tell us a little bit about the uh, the, the pre-contractual arbitration model that mm. that you've put forward for uh, for uh, the industry and, and and why it's so important to your members? Yeah, look, this this is an interesting uh, issue, and you know, I'll tell you where um, the whole issue of arbitration comes in and why we've um, sort of uh, 
expressed interest in the pre pre-contractual arbitration model. So many people might remember the General Motors withdrawal from uh, of Holden from Australia, um, and mm-hmm. um, and you know the the calls from many dealers there for for GM to properly compensate them. Um, most of the dealers, if not all, um, will tell you that compensation money provided by General Motors was inadequate. And um, the big trick there, or the big the big issue for those dealers was, it was very difficult for them to get satisfaction through the traditional court system. A number of them just signed up because they didn't trust the courts. They thought it would be a very long process that would cost a lot of money, and that it would do great sort of um, sort of damage to their, their themselves over the course of of a long time. Um, so they all signed up to an inferior compensation arrangement. Um, a number of other, other Holden dealers went forward and, and took uh, General Motors to court, and they're still in court. And um, it seems like uh, every every sort of argument becomes a separate legal case. It's just a very difficult thing for a small business like a dealer to take, a, or even a big dealer, to take an OEM to court. Um, and what we said is Holden demonstrated that you need some form of arbitration which provides timely and uh, cost-effective justice to those dealers. Um, the government is interested in doing something, but they've got constitutional limitations on on uh, mandating arbitration after a contract's been signed. So what's been recommended in the discussion paper is potentially having a form of pre-contractual arbitration. And how I see that working in the automotive sector is that um, that'll empower the dealers at the negotiation phase when you're talking about which terms go into a contract. And that might involve issues like how long the term of the agreement is, what the level of capital investment should be, and, you know, whether any of the terms are unfair. And, you know, if that negotiation sort of stalls, potentially there's a there's a option for someone just before the contract is signed to make a ruling in some of the key terms. So, so that's how it would work in theory. It's used in a few code of conduct here in Australia, such as the Sugar Code. Um, but it is sort of uncharted territory. So what we were actually asking is that the government does a bit more work on this issue so that we can understand how it would apply to our industry. But I think there are merits, and there certainly are merits for some form of arbitration because at the moment um, a dealer testing um, testing a case in court can be very expensive and can take a hell of a long time. Mm-hmm. And and if we move on to a very, you know, down the same line, why should there be an automotive industry-led agreement on binding arbitration, similar to what mm. the model in the, the grocery uh, code of conduct uh, yeah. example? So, look, I mean, this is, you know, the, you know one option such as um, pre-contractual binding arbitration is that we ask government to, to put something in place and uh, make sure that, you know, the rules are observed and that there's a dispute we go through the government's approved process. The other option is that industry, manufacturer and dealer and their representative bodies can come together and try and form some kind of an agreement. And then it's up to us and our members to put up put put that sort of dispute resolution mechanism in their contract. So so this is this is something we see in Canada. There's no government endorsed arbitration system, but there is a system which I think almost every manufacturer has agreed to in which they agreed to settle their disputes uh, via a agreed form of arbitration. That's something that I think might have merit here in Australia. Um, it'll be contingent on, on the, the industry bodies to drive it and, and come to a mutually acceptable 
solution, which our dealers and uh, manufacturers are willing to run with. But I think there is merit in industry at least giving this a try and trying to get on the same page so we can internalize our disputes and sort them out ourselves. Well, I guess the reality is, is that once something goes to court, everyone's lost already. I mean, the costs involved are just horrendous. Only the lawyers win. Uh, they, they get beach houses and, uh, and the businesses and the, the parties to, to the lawsuit don't, always, don't, don't win. <laughs> Excellent. Well, I think, I think, look, the key message there is we're, we're both about uh, the dealers winning as opposed to uh, right. do anything else. So, uh, look, thank you so much for talking with me today, James. There's a lot there to digest. Now, if people want to read this, uh, this briefing paper that's going around, uh, where, where are they best to get information on the work of the AADA? Look, please go to our website. Uh, there'll, be a, there'll be a section there which provides access to all of our submissions, all of our media releases. Uh, we're 100% transparent with all of that information. So, uh, yeah. The, the website is the place to get it. Fantastic. Look, thank you very much. That's uh, uh, James Wortman from the AADA. Thanks for listening. Thanks, Richard.